الحمد لله وكفى والسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعض فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والذين جاهدوا فينا لنهدينهم سبلنا سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون والسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم When you look at expertise in an area, one of the features that requires expertise is experience. And the more a person becomes experienced in something, the more they become, quote-unquote, an expert in that thing. The expertise and the experience of an individual then allows them to make conclusions in their own sphere. And those conclusions are going to be based on a certain degree of comfort. And that degree of comfort, in turn, is based, again, on their experience. So let me give you an example because it's convoluted what I just said. So I'll give you the example of medicine and practicing medicine. That's my background, so that's the experience I can share with you. So initially, what happens is the person begins to learn, well, you spend four years going to medical school. And in the four years of medical school, you always feel like you know nothing. <laughs> Then what happens is you, you make a transition from medical school to the practice of medicine. And the practice of medicine starts with uh, practicing as a trainee. They call it residency. Anyway, you practice as a trainee. And it's a very, very nerve-wracking experience for people to be a resident. The reason it's so nerve-wracking is because responsibility is all, all of a sudden thrown on your shoulder, and you are 100% certain that you're not ready for it, right? So a huge amount of responsibility comes on you. You're, you're, you've did four years of medical school. You were protected. No one ever expected too much of you. You kind of sat there and studied from a book a little bit. You maybe went and saw a patient, but there was always someone that would see the patient before you or after you that would cover you. And so you were very comfortable because there's no real responsibility on your shoulder. Now what happens is when you're a first-year resident, everything's on you. You have backup, but so much comes on your shoulder. And you know for certain that you don't have very much experience. So it becomes very stressful in that initial couple of years for a person as they're training and they're gaining a certain understanding of what they need to do with their patients. Okay, now what happens? They go through residency, and as they go through residency, it's like a five-year process, sometimes an eight-year process, maximum eight years. I guess there's ten years potentially, but let's just say eight years. And as they progress, they become more and more confident. Why? Because in that role of being a resident, 
they have experience and practice, they make mistakes, they learn, they make mistakes, they learn, they make mistakes, they learn. Until they eventually get to the point where they've been doing this for five or six years, they become relatively comfortable with what they're doing. Okay, now what happens? Eventually the cord is cut. They go from residency to now they have to become the one making all the final decisions. Because the residents report up a chain, right? They eventually have to report to their um, person in charge, and then that person in charge has to sign. The resident can sign, but they have to really sign their name, that I made this decision, I said this, I decided this. Now, when the resident, the resident's very, initially very uncomfortable, eventually becomes comfortable, because eventually they gain experience. When they go on to become the next level, which they call an attending, when they go on to become the next level, they're very nervous all over again. They're very nervous all over again. Why? Because now they know that their name is going on everything. And they are the really the ones that made the final decision. So, again, they, they undergo that same degree of stress. Because they think, okay, you know, now I'm the one making all the decisions. And if I make a mistake, it's going to be a big mistake. And it could potentially be harmful for another person. So the first couple of years, again, is stressful. All right? Now what eventually happens is they gain more and more experience. As they gain more and more experience, they become comfortable. And as they become comfortable, they begin to practice and they move along. And the more they practice and the more they move along, the more they become, they become even more comfortable. They become even more comfortable until eventually when something is put before them, they pretty much know that this is how to handle this thing. And they get almost to the point where they're an autopilot. In fact, they get into autopilot, basically. Eventually, that time comes. They get into autopilot. They just quickly make decisions, quickly know what to do, quickly know how to handle this. Now, that phase, that autopilot phase, that's a very, very dangerous phase. 99% of the decisions that they make are correct. But the problem is, in the context of that autopilot, they begin to make 1% of their decisions are not correct. Even if it's not 1%, let's pretend it's 0.05% or 0.5% or 0.1%. So what does that mean? It means that out of every 1,000 patients they see, they make one mistake. And we know this. I mean, it's not some hidden thing that doctors try to hide. You're human beings. They make mistakes as well. The problem then becomes when they go into autopilot, they can start to make a lot of mistakes. Now, how do they get beyond that? There's another one state beyond that, which the vast majority of people ever actually rarely get to, which is that a person becomes such an expert that eventually they get to the point where they know that you can never be certain about anything. You have to triple check everything. And the reason they get to this point is because their knowledge becomes so vast that they begin to know that what looks like red could sometimes be blue. That red isn't always red and blue isn't always blue. I'm just giving you an example of red and blue. I mean, obviously, in the context of disease, I mean, you look at a patient and you think it's A, but it could be B, C, D, and E. But the probability of that is almost zero, but it still could be. So this is a, that's the sign that a person has become an expert. The true expert. What is the sign of the truest expert? The sign of the truest expert is that when they eventually get to a certain point, they no longer are certain about anything. They become uncertain about everything. Not so that it paralyzes them, 
But they always know that there's a possibility for a mistake, and they never go into autopilot. And actually, this is the sign of a, of a true professional, the sign of the truest professional. If somebody, you know, dogmatically basically says, uh, no, this is this and that's it, there's not, you know, that's dangerous. But if the person says, this is this, but there's always the possibility that it could be this, this, and this, that's how you know that the person is playing it safe. Now, this is the example of the people, of the experts of this world. So basically, what was the summary? What am I trying to establish here? What I'm trying to establish is that it's very common in life to think that you know something, or we know something, or we know what the answer is, or we know how something should be, or we know what a decision should be made, what type of decision should be made. But the sign of an expert is that they recognize that they need to always be careful about the decisions that they make. Because there's so many other possibilities out there. Okay. So that's the context of medicine. So when does a person really become a true professional? When they look at a patient, and the patient looks like they have disease A, they proceed along with disease A, but in the back of their mind they start thinking, it could be, although at 0.00000001%, but it could be B, C, D, and E, so while I'm handling A, in the back of my mind, I'm processing, is it not B? Let me make sure. Is it not C? Let me make sure. Is it not D? Let me make sure. Is it not E? Let me make sure. Okay. That's the sign of the truest professional. And I'll tell you, those people are rare. And this is why medical mistakes can occur. You know, for example, somebody, everyday people show up in the ER and nobody ever thinks about um, malaria. Okay. Nobody ever thinks about malaria. But... There are some rare doctors that will, in the back of their mind, think that, okay, there's a theoretical possibility that this could be malaria. I remember there was a brother who was very sick, very sick, and he went to three hospitals, okay? He went to hospital A, and they just diagnosed him with something and sent him home. He went to hospital B, they diagnosed him, they sent, they sent him home. He went to hospital C, they diagnosed him, they did all these tests, they sent him home. Everybody made the same diagnosis, Okay? Months later, it was discovered that he had malaria and that all what was going on with him was related to malaria. Nobody had thought about it, but it was theoretically. Now, then when everybody looked back at it, everybody said, oh, wow, yeah, that makes sense. Everybody said that. But what happened was is that people were so in autopilot that, you know, malaria doesn't happen here. So you don't really see cases of malaria. I mean, you might, you know. Nobody thought about taking an extensive travel history. Nobody thought about doing these other things. Everybody just made a quick diagnosis, autopilot. It's got to be this. It's got to be this. It's got to be this. And it was, it was not a duplicate. It was triplicate. Three individual physicians at three individual good hospitals all made the same diagnosis. Only months later when it was discovered that all of this was due to malaria, did they all then, you know, scratch their heads and say, oh, yeah, actually that does make sense. That makes better sense than what I was initially thinking. So what's the summary? The summary is that all possibilities are on the table, and the person who systematically excludes them is the one who eventually becomes a professional and makes no assumptions about what they see before them. Now, this, uh, uh, this understanding of what makes a professional... This is in the context of a limited sphere, right? What does that mean? It means that, look, the doctors only have so many diagnoses they can make. 
there's only so many diseases in the book. I, I mean, I know the books are very big, but there's only so many disease, disease processes. I know there's different names. There's disease processes. There's only so many disease processes in the book. They have to establish infectious, neoplastic, uh, reactive, etc. right? So there's a, maybe 10, 15, 20 categories. Then you eventually can pigeonhole those people into those categories and then break down what, what, it's, what is the possible problem with the patient. Now, think about, the, the, by the way, the reason I'm giving this example is because this exact paradigm applies in matters of life as people make decisions in context of deen. This exact paradigm applies in life as people make decisions in context of deen. So what do, what, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that when a person is making decisions in life, which everybody in this room has to do, we make decisions and we tend to make decisions based on our comfort level. So when there's something new and we're very uncomfortable, we're very nervous. Okay, I'll give you an example. The first time you buy a car. Right? When, if anybody has an experience buying a car, the first time you walk into a car dealership, it's very confusing. All these numbers they throw around and they put these big long pieces of paper in front of you and you know, you're signing and thinking and it's so many moving parts and it, it can be very nerve-wracking because the person's not experienced. They've never done it. But the person who's bought three cars goes in there and just buys the fourth car. You know, there's some people who buy a car, new car every two, three years. They just walk in there, they buy the car, they're very, very comfortable. The more a person is experienced, the more comfortable they, be, they become. In the context of Dean, however, when a person is making decisions about what to do, the more righteous they become, and the more they approach Allah the more they begin to realize that they never know what the correct decision is, and the less they begin to rely on their experience and expertise. Is that clear? So, so I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a person, he's trying to decide where he should live. Okay, it's a family, they're trying to decide where they should live. Now, what, what would they do? Well, you know, if they've never done this, then it's very confusing. Should we live in Morton Grove? Should we live in Glenview? Should we live in Niles? Should we live in Lincolnwood? Oh, I can't figure it out. Where should I be? Okay? Because it's the first time they're renting a place or they're buying a place. Eventually, if they have experience and they know the area, they make a decision. Oh, I think we should move to Displains. Displains is a very vibrant community. There's a nice masjid there. We'll move to Displains. But as a person becomes more pious and as a person approaches Allah, they begin to realize that wait a minute, I'm trying to make a decision, but I have no data. I have no knowledge about any of this. Because I can maybe make a decision that I like displays because of the way it sounds. I like displays because of the number of Zabiha restaurants there. I like displays because of the home pricing there. I like displays because it's close to a masjid. But then they start thinking and they start, in the back of their mind, they say, well, wait a minute, but there's so many other things that I don't know. What if I move to Displains in my house? That the house that I move to, it's written that it's going to burn down. What if I move to Displains and a house that I move into, it's written that it's going to be burglarized? What if I move to Displains and I'm crossing the street and I get hit by a car? I mean, nobody thinks like this, right? But the point is, the reality is, is that we never know. We never know what actually could happen based on the decisions that we make. So as a person becomes more experienced in Deen, they begin to recognize that there's a lot of other possibilities. But as opposed to medicine, when an experienced person begins to recognize the possibilities and begins to process them, the person of deen begins to recognize the possibilities and begins to recognize that I cannot process them. 
that it's actually impossible for me to process them because it requires knowledge that there's no way I could ever have. Because how do I know what's going to happen in the future? How do I know if I move to Displains, my kids are going to grow up healthy and happy? How do I know that if I move to Displains, that this is going to be the right decision for me uh, for my schooling purposes or my religious purposes? Or maybe I move to Displains and then five years later, a new neighbor moves in and that neighbor gives me a hard time. How do you know the future? No one knows the future. No one knows what's best. And the thing is that in the context of medicine, it's limited, right? But in the context of deen, not only is the person trying to make decisions that are best for them in this life, but then they have that enormous weight on their shoulder of also trying to make the decision that is not only good in this life, but is also good in the hereafter. So as the person of deen begins to process all this, they begin to say, wait a minute, maybe I can figure out that displays uh, has high school rating, maybe it has uh, good home pricing, maybe it has a low crime rate. But then they start thinking, wait a minute, but all the other aspects of my life that are all going to occur in the future, there's no way that I can make a decision about displays based on that. And then beyond that, the whole angle of how is this going to affect my hereafter, there's no way that I can make a decision based on that. So what does that do? That leads the person of deen to always do two things. That leads the person of deen to always do two things before they make any decision. The first is that they consult others, particularly the people of piety and the people who uh, they have connection with. And the reason that they, they do this is not because there's a magic wand in the hand of the Mashiach. It's because the Qur'an commands them to take consultation and it's through that consultation that they are able to gain the barakah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's blessing in any circumstance. I want to make this very clear because it's often confused. There's Sheikh A, okay? Person goes to Sheikh A and they ask Sheikh A a question. Sheikh A provides them an answer which appears to be highly beneficial to them. That did not occur because Sheikh A is some sort of, you know, person that is able to make decisions that another human being is not able to make. The reason that that decision was that, the reason that that information was beneficial to the person that asked the question is because the person made their best effort out of sincerity to go and approach someone recognizing that only Allah knows what's best for us but because Allah has commanded us and the hadith recommend that we go and take consultation therefore I'm going to go and take consultation to leverage this a mechanism in my favor so that I make the right decision. Is that clear? It's not contingent on the piety of the individual. It's contingent on the sincerity of the questioner. When the questioner makes the intention that I am going to ask the question because I don't know, only Allah knows, but Allah will put barakah in my asking, so that is when there is barakah in the answer. Now, at the same time, why, did, why is the sheikh able to give the answer? Because the sheikh also knows that they have been given a responsibility and that by fulfilling that responsibility, there will be barakah also in the questioning and potentially the answer. So this has to be absolutely clear. You know, and I'll give you, there was a very funny example that happened one time. So one time there was a brother, and again, you know, in this case it's me, but there was a brother who came and asked me a question. 
And this brother came and asked me a question about their housing. Okay? So, I mean, I knew that this brother is not going to go ask anybody else. They're definitely coming and asking me because they want Baraka in their, in their decision. I was invested in, the, in it. They were invested in it both for the sake of Allah. Because I'm not getting anything out of it. They're not getting anything out of it as far as that relationship is concerned. But we're both doing it for the sake of Allah. So this brother comes and asks me a question and says, you know, I want to buy this house. This house is this, this, there's this complex transaction going on in the background. And, you know, this house, they're asking for 400 and I don't know, 10,000. I'm making up some number. Okay. So I said to the brother, I said, okay, or offer 420. So the brother's looking at me. He's like, but they're asking 410. Why are you telling me to offer 420? So I had my reasoning. We're not going to go into that. Okay. Anyway, so the brother goes and he gets involved in the transaction. He eventually buys the house. He offers 420. He gets the house. Later on, it becomes very clear that that house is worth much more than what he paid. Much more than what he paid. So what happens? He tells another brother. He says, oh, you know, I went to Hussein. I asked him this question. He told me this. I made so much money. Okay. So then the other brother calls me up, random brother. He's like, uh, um, uh, you know, I need to ask you a question. I'm thinking about this uh, transaction. So should I buy this or not? So I'm thinking like, why is this guy asking me this question? You know, it became clear to me later why this guy's asking me the question. I wasn't really invested, to be honest with you. They weren't really invested, to be honest with them. They were thinking about money. They weren't thinking about, you know, oh my God, my deen, my dunya, my this, you know. So I gave the guy some advice and then he comes back and he says, yeah, you know, I tried, but the transaction didn't go through. I said, yeah, the transaction <laughs> didn't go through. But it's not because, it's not because I said, I don't have a magic wand. It's not like if I say to you that this transaction is this much or you should offer this much, all of a sudden there's going to be a magic wand. It has nothing to do with the individuals involved. It has only to do with Allah. It has only to do with Allah. The reason that that first brother had asked the question had nothing to do with money. It had to do with what's best for my deen, what's best for my family, what's best for my kids, what's best for my akhirah, all right? And how can I manage this process in a way that's going to be sharia compliant? And what's the purpose of my answering the question? I'm not thinking about how much this guy is going to make. I'm thinking this is your dean. This is, these are responsibilities on your shoulder. These are the things that you need to do. These are the things that we need to think about. We care about akhirah more than we care about dunya. So everybody's on the same page. When everybody's on the same page, the wires connect. When the wires connect, there's a very, very special current that runs through those wires. And that's the current of dean. It, it plugs you into a silsila. This is what we call the silsila. You know, this is what this whole baya and connection and all of this is about. You plug yourself into an outlet that's connected, but you're connected, they're connected, and that's what allows this transaction to occur. So anyway, the point that I'm trying to make is that in any important decision in life, right, as we become experts in deen, in the sense that we become experts in the reality of dunya and the purpose of, the, of this world, one of the most essential things is that we, we consult. And the better we have, the better the outlets of that consultation, the better it will be for everybody involved. doesn't mean you can, you know, and it, it, the purpose has got to be not because I want to make money. I mean, you can't come and consult and ask the question based on, well, do, you know, if I make an under 100, 100, extra $100,000, I can live my life more comfortably. That's not the way that this works. The intention, it's totally based on the intention. Everybody's got to be on the same page and it's got to be solely for the sake of Allah. So what was the, what was the summary up till now? The summary up until now is that life is a very complicated endeavor. In this complicated endeavor, we have to make decisions. Those decisions are, no matter how superficially easy they appear, are never easy. 
No matter how superficially easy they appear, listen to me very carefully, they are never easy. Because it's the most obvious um, decisions that are the most dangerous, honestly. Because those are the ones that we go into autopilot and we think we know what we're doing. So, basically, the first thing for any decision, we never make any decision. I'm not saying do I get up out of bed in the morning or not. But any decision that requires something something for us to leave our standard routine of the sunnah and the sharia. We never make any decision without seeking consultation. But in the context of recognizing that the only, that, that, that no decision is obvious and that the only way that I'm going to be able to make the right decision for my deen and my dunya is if I have this one angle of barakah in this decision. So that, that's, that's aspect number one. Aspect number two. We never, ever, ever make a decision without making istikhara. We never, ever make a decision without making istikhara. Now, what is istikhara? Istikhara is a process in which... Istikhara means to what? It means to seek good. To seek what's best. To seek what's better. That's kind of like the literal translation. And basically the idea here, to seek guidance, to, to guide us to what's best. The idea here is that there is a process embedded in our deen which Rasulullah taught to his companions in the background of this understanding that decisions are always complex because their consequences are very, very deep. Very, very deep. This, again, I mean, that's the premise of this whole discussion, that we never take any decision for granted. But istikhara is an essential blessing that allows us to be able to pass through the decisions as we live our lives. So what is istikhara? Istikhara is very simple. Istikhara is a submission of oneself to the reality that we know nothing and that there, are, there is very limited data that's available to us when we make any decision. That is what is istikhara. Oh Allah, you know, I don't, I don't know. You're the one that decrees, I have no ability to decree. You are the all-powerful, I am completely weak, etc., etc. This is the sort of the, the think, the thought process that goes into istikhara. And then eventually, we relegate the matter to Allah. Because we say, Allah, you know I don't know. You're the one that decrees. If this is what is good for me in this life and the next, and this is what is best for me in my deen and my dunya, then you make it easy for me. And bring it to me and bring me to it. And if this matter is bad for me, and it's going to create problems for me, and it's going to be a disturbance in my deen and my dunya, then you separate it from me and separate me from it. And you put something in its place, and you make me happy with it. Look, I mean, what, a, what an all-encompassing basic uh, dua that a person can learn that just covers everything. Because look, what happens? We get very attracted to things and we think that they're the right decision. You get attracted to a house and you don't... I mean, you, you, we lose our sanity. You know, if, I, if you have to make a decision for anybody else, it's always easy. Oh, I don't buy that house. I would buy this house. I would buy that house. But what happens? When you go there, everything, you fall in love. You can't see anymore. It just looks like the most beautiful house ever built, right? So now you're thinking, I love it. I love it. It's brown. It's on the corner. It's this. It's that. We can't see clearly anymore. Now, when we can't see clearly, how can we make decisions? And the funny thing is that our heart gets, our heart, our heart gets attached. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recognizes that our heart gets attached. 
So the dua, so the dua basically is, if this is good for me in this life and the next, bring me to it, bring me to, bring, bring it to me and make it easy and allow it to occur. But look at the opposite. If this is bad for me in this life and the next, move it from me, move me from it, replace it with something else and make me happy with that thing. Right? Because otherwise I know I got this other thing, but I'm not happy. I really wanted that. Right? So this is the, this is the, um, all encompassing nature of this effort that a person should, that we, that we as believers who are work, working along the path of excellence, we need to appreciate this and relegate everything to Allah. We need to relegate everything to Allah. Now, what does that mean? I mean, you get up in the morning and you, should I use Aquafresh, should I use Crest? No, I'm not talking about that. Okay? What I'm talking about is the things that are beyond the routine. All right? Where do I live? When should I travel? Where should I travel to? Where should I accept a job? Uh, which community should I move? Where should I put my kids for school? Any ma- which teacher should I choose for HIFS? I don't know. Any major decision that we should ever make, we should always make in the context of istikhara. And what does that do? That then takes the, sh- the matter out of our hands. Okay. Now, then people say to me, I mean, then, you know, people get this far. Let's say it's funny because depending on where you are in your training, you know, you get to different stages. So uh, maybe you're at A where you forget about consulting anybody and you just make all the decisions on, on your own. Then you get burned five, six times. Okay. Then you say, okay, now I need to consult a little more. Then you begin to consult. And then eventually you learn the, the process of istikhara. So where, where is the hang up here? If somebody's this far along what I've already spoken of, where's the hang up? Then the hang up is, that uh, I made istikhara, you know, first they consult, then they make istikhara, then after istikhara, then they complain. They say, but I made istikhara, but my istikhara is not coming. My istikhara is not coming. So what is my istikhara is not coming? You know, I need to see green light or red light or yellow light. Green light, go. Red light, stop. Yellow light, yield. You know, it doesn't work that way. Istikhara does not work that way. That, you know, only when I see it in a dream that I'm running in a field and my wife is there, this is the wife that I have to marry. This is, doesn't, life doesn't work that way. Istikhara doesn't work that way. Nor are our dreams reliable. We dream about 55,000 things because we have 55,000 uh, inputs into our brain constantly. Istikhara basically means that as you begin to make istikhara, you proceed with what you think is best. You make the best effort, you proceed with what's best, and if as you proceed, all these blocks keep coming, you don't tear them down and say, my green, my, my dream was green. You basically slow down, reassess, back up, and stop. And as a person makes a stakhara, if everything begins to work out, then it'll naturally work out, and the person will pursue it. So, I mean, how, how many times have I spoken to somebody and they say, you know, uh, I'm thinking about getting married, brother. This is the background. This is all the circumstance. What do you think? So then I give them a few pieces of advice. And then they and I always told them, make a staccata. Call me in a week. Okay, they make a staccata. They call me in a week. And they say, you know, I didn't see anything. Then I say, okay, if you're not comfortable, then you should feel comfortable in your heart. Make a staccata. They make a staccata for two months. The other family's calling. What's going on? How's your staccata? How's my staccata? It's going on forever. Everybody's getting frustrated. But the point is that, you know, you make a sakhara, make a sakhara, and then you begin to move forward in the thing that's the sunnah. You know, marriage is the sunnah, for example. And then you proceed, and you keep making a sakhara, and you make a sakhara all the way until the day before the nikah. Then what happens is once they, you know, make a decision, then everybody forgets about a sakhara, forgets about consultation, and now they're just, you know, it's all rosy. You never know. We never know. 
Just like, you know, you're hesitant when you get into a, an area where you're unsure. You know, I mean, for example, if I said to you, uh, brother, I want you to go and install a door, okay? And you never installed a door before. You're not going to ask the questions and then go run and install the door. You'll put in one screw and then you'll be like, is the screw right? Is the screw right? Okay, then you put in the second screw. You keep asking the question until the whole door is all done. So that's the same thing. We never take any, we never put any faith or trust in ourselves. We always put all faith and trust in Allah. And we keep asking the question and we tell everyone to keep asking the question. Until the matter is sealed. When the matter is sealed, then you know it's not that, uh, you, that you got married and the next the next day you're making a sort about the person. You know, the, you wake up next to them. Uh, uh, you know, Allah, is this the right person? That, I'm not saying to make that. I'm saying that up until the point when you actually finalize something, and then you move on and make a sahara about the next thing. Anyway, very very simple summary of this is that. As a person, so initially when a person begins to enter into deen, they begin to make decisions very rapidly. I mean, they get a little worried in the beginning. They ask a few questions. They get comfortable. And then they begin to think that they know. They begin to make decisions rapidly. But eventually, as a person gets more and more deep into deen and begins to approach Allah, they then begin to recognize that they know nothing. That we never know anything. We never know what's the best decision. We never know where we should be. I mean, I'm just telling you, you know, very simple thing. You decide to make a trip, Okay. And it just seems so clear that I should make this trip. I don't know. You're going to make a trip to Arizona. All right? Now, how do you know that when you get to Arizona, there isn't some virus sitting there that infects you and causes the disease five years later? Now, we don't know those things today, right? But I will tell you that one day, and who knows when, maybe 100 years from now, it'll become clear that, oh, you know, and I'm not saying that this is fact, I'm just saying these are possibilities that, oh, well, this particular disease would occur because a person was exposed to this thing in the environment, but we just never knew that this was the environmental trigger when there was already a genetic propensity in a particular person, okay? So you don't know what your genetic makeup is, you don't know what the possibility of a particular disease is, but if somebody with your genetic makeup ends up in a particular environment, they may get that disease, we don't know these things today, you know. It's like when people used to look at disease 500 years ago. They knew people would get sick, but they wouldn't fully understand why. Nothing's changed. We, we, we act very sophisticated, but not that much has changed. We only know 1%, less, 1%, you know, even patting ourselves on the back. We know very little. Not that we haven't made progress, but there's much, much more to, to, to learn. And, you know, 500 years from now, it'll look very different. So the reality is, what, is that, what does that put us to? And the complexity of the universe is such that a person never knows where they should be at what time. Except the things that are obvious. And alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala established those things for us. We know prayer is obvious. We should be at prayer. Right? So those things are obvious. I'm not talking about those things. But basically, we have to become uh, creatures who are not in autopilot. I'm just running and living my life. I'm just making decisions based on what I think is best. I'm just making decisions on what I want. That's autopilot. That's a very dangerous state to be in. We have to kick ourselves auto, out of autopilot, which means we have to go one step beyond. And when we go one step beyond, we have to recognize that only Allah knows the consequences of things. There's too many variables. We don't know. You know, in, in the complexity of the planet, how could we know? I mean, look... The, the, the way the, the, the rays of the sun are, are spreading across the universe is different every millisecond in the history of the Earth's creation. And what I mean by that is there's no moment that replicates the prior moment when you look at the, all the atmospheric variables. 
the sun, the clouds, the haze, the moisture, the, the temperature, right? It's in the context of that that we make decisions. We're making decisions in the context of, of a new paradigm every millisecond. Not even millisecond is just a term, which is dividing time in a way that even doesn't need to be divided. The reality is that every single, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's ability to create is so vast that every single moment is absolutely different. But, but, the reality is, is that every moment was contingent on the one prior. Okay, so for example, what I mean by that is when I look at Brother A, okay, Brother A is sitting in front of me. When I see Brother A sitting in front of me, Brother A is not Brother A. Brother A is a conglomerate of generations across thousands of years. Brother A did not show up here except that thousands of years of people came before him. His ancestors and forefathers and forefathers until eventually decisions were made that Brother A sits in front of me today. I mean, just think about it, you know, uh, uh, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, for the people who came from another place, our, our parents or our grandparents, they made a decision to come here. Did they make a sakhara? Or did they just think, well, I got residency in, in medicine, and so I got a spot. I'm, you know, somebody told them it was good to come to the United States, and they made a decision. How do they know? Right? They made decisions. I mean, fine. Let's say they made a decision for themselves. Let's say they were smart enough to actually think of all of the ramifications for themselves. Did they think, what will my life be like 30 years from now? Did they think about all angles? Okay, let's just say, I'm telling you they didn't, but let's just say that they were wise enough to do that. Even if they were wise enough to do that, did they think, what's going to happen to my kids? They probably didn't. But even if they were wise enough to do that, did they think, what's going to happen to my grandkids? They probably didn't. But if they were wise enough to do that, did they think, what's going to happen to my grandkids, grandkids, grandkids? No way. No way did their mind go that far. How would they know that the decision that I made in 1970 is going to affect my grandkids, grandkids, grandkids in uh, the year, you know, 2300? No, they did not think. They did not think because they don't have the ability to capture that much. There's no way. But only who, who knows the answer? Only Allah knows the answer. Only Allah knows that if I make this decision, what effect it will have on my great-great-great-grandkids 300 years from now. So how can, we, how can we be comfortable in any decision that we make? You know, I mean, I will tell you that when those people came, you know, from one country to another, they may, may have had some hesitancy. They may have been a little scared. But for them, it was like a slam-dunk, obvious decision. I got an opportunity. I need to go. For, for most of them, maybe some of them thought through it a little in, in, in a different way. But how many of them would actually say to you that I didn't come until I made a sakara and I was absolutely certain? Very few, probably. So what, what does that tell us? We, we make decisions not for ourselves. We make decisions also beyond ourselves for so many others. And it affects so many other angles. You know, today if I decide to move my family to place A... I affect my family, and my family, each of those kids will have kids, and each of those kids will have kids, and each of, until it becomes thousands of people that were all affected by one decision that I made. How do I know what's right? Even if I can figure it out for myself, how can I figure it out for the people who don't even exist yet? Not possible. Not possible. And so the person of piety begins to see down that timeline. The person of piety begins to recognize their inability. The person who approaches Allah begins to see how weak they are and how, uh, how, uh, how all-powerful He is and how limited they are and how unlimited He is and how 
um, and how ignorant they are, and how all-knowing he is. This is the sign of a person of saluk. The more they approach Allah, the more they appreciate Allah, the more they see the reality of Allah's uh, power, and the more they begin to recognize that I cannot make any decision without relegating it to Allah. The more they see themselves as someone who has absolutely no experience, because how can anybody have experience in a world that is completely unraveling itself over time? There's no way. There's no way a person could be comfortable in that. When a person appreciates Allah's creation and begins to see the vastness of it and begins to see how all of it begins, how all of it relates to one another, they become less comfortable, not more comfortable in their decisions. And as they become less comfortable, they only recognize further that they need to make consultation so that they can bring Allah's barakah into that decision. That they need to make istikhara so that they can bring Allah's barakah into that decision. And they don't rush. They walk very slowly. Now what happens? We get into autopilot. It's the most dangerous state that a person can get into. Is they get into autopilot and we start thinking that we know. Oh, I know. Come, you know, I'll tell you, you should move to displays. Very obvious. So I'm just going to move to displays. How do we know what's right? Maybe if I would have moved to Oklahoma, it would have been better for me and my family. There's nothing obvious. There's no, no obvious decision. So we constantly do two things whenever we need to make a decision. Number one, we seek consultation. And number two, we make a sahara. And we keep making a sahara and we keep making a sahara until the event passes and we need to move on and then we make a sahara about the next thing. Until we appreciate, with the notion that we appreciate that only Allah knows and that the only thing that we want is that which is best for us in this life and the next. If it is only good for us in this life, but harmful for us in the next, we don't want to have anything to do with it, no matter how outwardly it may appear, no matter how good it may appear outwardly. That is actually the sign of piety. That is the sign of wisdom. So, in this day and age, be very particular about consultation and be very particular about making istikhara. It's the one dua that everybody in this room should memorize and regularly recite and regularly reflect on. It's such a powerful tool. We shouldn't leave it. We shouldn't become lax. We shouldn't go into autopilot. We should recite this dua abundantly. Every night we should put our matters in our head, recite this dua and ask Allah to guide us to what's best. Every morning when we wake up, we should put matters in our head, recite this dua, and ask Allah to guide us to what's best. We never know for sure. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the wisdom to be able to appreciate the effects of our decisions. And may, may, may He make us among those who make our decisions solely for the sake of the, our benefit, both in this life and the akhirah. Wa akhirat da'wana. Anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.